Hello Geeks, Ian Paget here and on this week's podcast I'm interviewing Aaron Walter to discuss the value designers can bring to a business, his UX design process and how he uses emotion in design to improve the experience. But before we jump into the interview, I want to share a few ways that you can continue to learn and develop as a designer. One of the best tools I've come across over the last few years has been Skillshare, which is a website with hundreds of short courses ranging from design-related topics such as animation, film, illustration, photography, and of course, graphic design, logo design, um, as well as you know things like business skills from uh, freelance life, accounting, management, stuff like that. It's a really incredible resource. I've personally enjoyed courses from designers such as George Bacoa and Aaron Draplin. Um, so both of those are well worth checking out. Skillshare is only about $10 a month to join. So it's incredibly uh, good value for money. But if you want to go and check it out for free and try a few of the courses that I've mentioned, you can get a free two-month trial just by heading to logogeek.uk forward slash Skillshare. Again, for a free two-month trial, simply visit logogeek.uk forward slash Skillshare and going there, you can go and check out those courses from people like Aaron Draplin and George Bacoa completely free. So it's well worth doing that. And if you're looking for something a little bit more premium, I can also recommend the courses that have been put together by Christo and the team at The Future. For example, they have a really amazing lettering course from a designer called Niels Lindstrom, which I can highly recommend. Uh, they also have a fantastic logo design construction course too, and loads of other uh, topics that are well worth checking out. So to go and see those, head to Logo geek.uk forward slash future. Now it's worth noting that that is an affiliate link. So if you do make a purchase going by that link, you actually help to support the Logo Geek podcast at no extra cost. So again, if you want to go and check out all the courses that the future have been putting together, which I highly recommend doing, simply head to logogeek.uk forward slash future. So anyway, as mentioned this week, I'm interviewing Aaron Walter, who's the VP of Design Education at Envision, and he's also the author of a number of design books, uh, such as Designing for Emotion. Aaron's team actually reached out to me uh, for him to be a, a potential guest. And after looking through the stuff that he's been doing, I came across a website called designbetter.co, which is a project that he's been working on at Envision. And it's, a, it's an incredible website full of uh, free design resources. So I highly recommend checking that out. And I also recommend checking out Aaron's podcast too, which is also called Design Better because they have loads of amazing guests. Uh, so if you enjoy this podcast, go and check that out. You'll learn loads from the guests that Aaron's been getting on his show. Uh, Aaron also founded the UX practice at MailChimp. So he has a wealth of knowledge around UX design too. And on top of that, he's authored a number of amazing books, such as Designing for Emotion, as I mentioned. So there was loads that I wanted to talk to him about. So I thought he would be a fantastic guest. In this interview, we discuss about the value designers can bring to a business, how you can measure the success of a design, 
his approach to UX design and also how you can use emotion in design to improve the experience. Whilst this episode is a little bit more focused on UX design, I know most people listening to this are graphic designers, so I hope you find the content in this interview useful. It's worth pointing out for some reason we had a slight technical issue with Aaron's mic. So the first 10 minutes of his audio has a little bit of an echo, uh, but from 10 minutes onwards, it's really nice, clean and clear. So I hope you can bear with us on that and uh, that you still enjoy the episode. So anyway, let's jump straight into the interview. Here is Aaron Walter. When I, when I was preparing for this interview, I made sure to look at everything about you, your website and so on. And I understand that this is quite an interesting topic for you. So I wanted to start off with this. So I want to ask you your opinion. What value can designers bring when they have a seat at the table within a business? Well, they can, they can bring a lot. Design has a lot of uh, unique skills in that we tend to be pretty good at turning abstract ideas and concepts into something concrete that others can see. And when others can see that, they can start to ideate um, together. They can start to think about business models around that. And you can start to create something that helps everyone have like a shared vision of this is, this is where we're headed together. Um, so I think that's a very powerful thing that design um, can offer. I do think that design is this proverbial seat at the table that design, and basically what that means is, you know, design is understood, it's valued, it's invested in, it is part of the broader activities in the company when we're setting strategy and, um, you know, defining goals and so forth. For design to occupy that space effectively, we kind of have to think a little less navel gazy of, you know, what's, what's our own language and about our craft and so forth. Those, those are all important things, but we have to start to think about what we're making and how that influences the business. How does your design help the business reach its goals? And then we need to talk to people about our work from that lens to the extent that we can do that we will be included in those deeper conversations. Um, oftentimes designers feel like, I wasn't consulted. Why are we doing this? You, you brought me in at the end of the process uh, to, to decorate or make it look pretty. Chances are that's probably because you are not communicating your work uh, in the context of, of the business. So that's a really important skill that we as designers need to have. Okay, so leading on from that, Obviously, as graphic designers, we need to be able to um, sell what we do and convince clients or you know people within an organization of what we can bring. Mm. So what what's your thoughts on convincing um, clients or business owners that we need to be brought in earlier in the process and and not just at the end just to make something look pretty? Um. Well, I think that the most effective way to do it is instead of directly saying you should bring us in at the beginning, uh, which may or may not work. In my experience, it often it's it's not the most effective uh, approach. Sort of like saying to someone, "You should respect me more." 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of hard to do. Respect is something that's earned through action. And so if you want design to be included in strategic conversations, you need to first show that design can have strategic outcomes. So what we see, uh, so my, my team at Envision, we end up studying a lot of teams and visiting them. Uh, we did a, a big study of 2,200 um, companies, agencies, product companies across lots of different types of markets around the world. And um, um, we see that the, the most successful pattern um, for getting people to understand and respect design and employ it effectively in an organization is by uh, tackling a project that is, um, you know, not something that everyone's paying attention to. It's not the cash cow. You're not trying to redesign the homepage necessarily or recreate the, uh, I don't know, the, the payment gateway in your product. Um, you're choosing something that maybe is a cost center, cost the company money or they're losing money through that, um, or just nobody's paying attention. And you use design and in a very time boxed way to try to make that better. And you snap a baseline before your project and then you, you get um, the analytics afterwards to show here's what life was like before and here's what life was like after and here's the value we created um, for the company. Case in point, um, Abigail Hart Gray, who used to be at LearnVest, which is a large financial institution, she came into there uh, the, the, to that company, and um, she saw that uh, like this the the main portal. There was a section of the portal where people went into the bank um, to to look at their accounts. Um, that people were getting paper copies of all their statements, and with some light design changes, they could just make people more aware and have them opt into electronic um, documentation. And no one's paying attention to that at the company. No one really cares. They know it's just sort of, it's part of business. We've got to print these things and mail them to people. But through design, they decreased the number of people that were getting printed copies dramatically, and they saved the company millions of dollars. And, you know, I would argue that also creates a better user experience that do we really, I personally don't want 15 envelopes in my uh, mailbox that I have to go process and recycle. So that's an example of, Instead of saying, I need respect, it's showing this is the value that we can bring. That's how you go from no one gets designed to being invited to important conversations. That's a, a really great example. Uh, it's quite simple, but it clearly made a big difference. Um, I'm just thinking, though, that particular example is something that you could uh uh, so, so suggest and implement if you work as part of a team in an organization. But do you have a different answer for um, those who are those who are listening who um, offer graphic design services to clients? I, I think it's not so dissimilar. Um, if I were, so I used to run run my own, you know, services uh, company, and um, you know, it's it's kind of a similar approach where whatever you're doing for your client, capture the baseline of this is, you know, get access to analytics um, if you can, metrics to try to understand where the business is right now. Um, do that work and show how you move the needle um, afterwards. I think it's, it's very similar. And then when you're engaging new clients and they're starting to say like, oh, could you design this new site for me? 
you can say, well, you know, we actually have this really compelling case study that shows that we can do more than that. We can help you solve some bigger problems that will really help your, your company um, improve uh, you know, bottom line, whatever ROI metrics you want to speak to. Um, create com compelling case studies on your website that show how you move the needle for a company, not just look at all these beautiful things that I made. I mean, it's, it's kind of um, to be expected if, if we're only showing our work from an aesthetic perspective, not from a business impact perspective, um, it shouldn't be so surprising that people think of our services in that respect, that we will just make it look good. Yeah, that's very true. I, I do commonly see a lot of graphic designers, especially in the uh, logo design space, showing yeah. only a logo on its own rather than sharing the challenges that they faced or problems solved, or, um, you know, sharing it in context too. So I 100% agree the importance of uh, case studies. But uh, can I just ask your thoughts, because it's something that I've been thinking about as you've been speaking. Uh, so far, the examples that you've spoken about have been uh, quite UX focused and, and that's something that can be fairly easily measured and monitored and you know you can tweak things and uh, monitor the conversion rate but what's your thoughts with something uh, like brand identity design or logo design mm -hmm. how can you measure uh, the success of that when it's something a little bit more cosmetic in, in comparison yeah well, there are different ways you can study brand influence um, and brand recognition. Um, I mean, you can use, and, and by the way, I don't profess to be an expert on this. So No, it's fine. I'm interested in what you, what you think. Um, you can use things like surveys to try to get a sense for you know, surveys before and after a project, um, especially if there's like a broader marketing campaign that's part of it. It's not just that. You updated the brand, but what did you do to circulate that? Um, uh, you can speak directly to customers and you know run surveys to try to get a sense for their reaction. So more qualitative, less quantitative, um, to understand like how does this change your perceptions of the organization? Um, of course, you need to get those perceptions beforehand too, uh, as a uh, you know, you need to show a delta of this is what it was before and here's what we created afterwards. You can also look at, um, you know, to the extent that it makes sense for your organization or for the, the project you're doing. Um, social media influence could be another thing that, that might have an uptick or a change. Um, there's a, a really interesting case study that's in uh, my, my book, uh, Designing for Emotion. Chapter seven is devoted to it. Uh, a designer by the name of Matthew Smith, who lives in Greenville, South Carolina, did a big branding and website redesign for a company who writes resumes for uh, people who are looking for jobs. And with that redesign, um, they saw a huge uptick in their business and they ended up being featured on Oprah. Um, and it's a pretty extreme example of how branding design changed outside perceptions and that um, helped this business really grow in ways that it probably wouldn't have mm, that's a pretty big deal to get featured on uh opera so I, i'm keen to uh take a look at the before and after on that one because uh, it must have been really impressive work um i, I just want to jump back to something you mentioned earlier about a uh, study you did on what was it 2200 agencies um was there any interesting outcomes from that uh that you wasn't expecting 
Yeah. So it wasn't just agencies. It was um, lots of different design teams. So 2,200 companies around the world. I think about 20 to 30% of them were agencies. Um, there were some interesting outcomes from that. Uh, one thing that we hear a lot is, you know, if you're, if you're in a full-time um, kind of larger company situation, uh, people often think if we only had more headcount or more designers on the team, we would create better work and we could be more effective. And the reality is that we see that that's true to a certain extent. And then, um, especially after like around 40 or 50 people, um, it actually, the, the more people you add, the harder it is to do great work. And that is primarily because there's a coordination tax that when you've got a whole lot of people, you've got to operationalize and get them all to work together. Um, so that becomes pretty challenging. Um, another thing is around ratios that how many designers to engineers, there's often this perception and I have held this perception from a lot of qualitative research we've done through, uh, the design genome project where we, we did these really in-depth studies of companies like Netflix and Intuit and Capital One, um, and Pinterest. And, um, the qualitative research suggested that if you had a better ratio of designers to engineers, so let's say like one to one designer to four engineers, you're more likely to produce great work. But from our study of 2,200 companies, it turns out that ratios are not a significant uh, factor in, um, you know, improving the work of design. So that was, that was fascinating to see. I, I didn't really expect that. that that's really interesting. Uh, not what you'd expect at all. Um, in terms of larger teams being harder to coordinate, I'm not at all surprised to hear that, to be honest. As I know, some of the most successful um, companies that I've had contact with anyway have uh, been fairly small, and I'd imagine that they keep them small for uh, for that reason. Uh, now, I understand that you have uh, a lot of experience from your time at MailChimp and uh, also Envision. And even though this podcast is primarily around logo design, it would be a shame and uh, a missed opportunity to um, not spend some time learning from your UX, UX experience. So yeah. would you be willing to share with us some of the uh, process that you typically follow when uh, you work on a UX project? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the key things that um, is often missing uh, in, in a lot of projects is just research and research is something that I really love. Uh, if you, if you can't tell already. Um, so I, I started the design team at MailChimp and, and grew that. And it's since grown into a much bigger organization doing really sophisticated stuff these days. But, um, and part of that is, um, I created a research team and all the work that we did, um, we spent time talking to customers and really understanding the problem um, as much as we could before designing. So, you know, the process that I like to follow is if we're confronting a particular problem, there is a certain amount of research that we would do. So if it's a small iteration on a, a an existing feature or product, we might um, do some baseline usability testing to see how effective that workflow is. And that's kind of, as I alluded to earlier, catching the, the baseline of here's where we were and we'll try to make yeah. that better. Um, so there's that sort of research and then also just qualitatively doing a lot of interviews with people. 
Um, if you're, you know, doing, you're thinking about the future of like, what, what's the big change that we could make, um, as maybe many listeners, uh, of your podcast might be, if you're doing a big rebrand for a company, there are things like design sprints that can be used to think about, um, you know, customers and, um, you know, do some research around that, build some prototypes, test that. Um, with real customers and get feedback in a short period of time. It's, you know, very time boxed. Um, so I love that process. If uh, design sprints don't work for everything, but they do if you're really trying to explore um, what I would call horizon two. So it's could not I just like, ask you, could you explain what you mean by a, 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 a design sprint uh, for people that sure. aren't aware of what that is? Sure. Yeah. A design sprint is um, a process that was, um, popularized by the Google Ventures team. And sprints are um, usually five days, um, sometimes three days, and sometimes even one day. But uh, major companies like the Home Depot, for example, or you know Google, or you name, name most any company, there's probably a design team doing a design sprint. Um, it starts out with you know, each day has a specific goal. So day one, you're trying to understand the problem. Um, and, uh, all the way through to, uh, you know, day two where you're prototyping, uh, or sorry, I think it's day three, actually, I might get my days wrong, but you're prototyping something, um, based on your hypotheses and, uh, you know, you work together in a small team to produce a whole collection of ideas. You prototype that in high fidelity. So it feels real and you can suspend people's disbelief and then you put it in front of real people and they use your product and you get the reactions. And um, it's a way where you can really decrease the risk of your work. Um, if you spent a ton of time developing you know, some big design project and you haven't put it in front of people and you just launch it and hope that it's well-received, that's certainly a tactic that a lot of people have used for, for many years. But you can see that that's, that's dangerous because you go to market and you don't really know if you're hitting the mark or not. So design sprint is a way to, um, you know, de-risk some of that. And if, if you're interested in learning more about design sprints, um, if you visit designbetter.com, we've actually written a great book on it that has a facilitation guide that can show you how to do that. Yeah, I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes for anyone that wants to find that. Um, could I ask you then, uh, you mentioned about having customers actually there so that you can see how they're using it. How are you going about finding those people so that you are able to do, um, you know, things like mum testing? So um, if, if you're working for a client that's already in business, pretty strong chance that they have a customer database. And you can just get a sample of those people, like get some emails, send some emails and say, hey, we'd love to talk to you for 30 minutes. Um, sometimes people offer an incentive like an Amazon gift card or something for their time. Uh, but you know, you'd be surprised. A lot of people would be happy to, to talk for 30 minutes. Um, you can do that on the phone. You don't have to be in person. Um, you can do it on the, the old school phone or you can be on zoom is something that we use a lot, um, to do research. So, um, pretty much any company is going to have access to customers and there's no better way to learn. You can also use some things like usertesting.com is, um, and they connect people who want to test something with users who will 
you know, run it through the, the paces. Mm. That sounds really useful. Again, I'll make sure to add a link to that in the show notes. So sorry, I interrupted while she was talking through your uh, the, the process that you would take for um, working on a UX project. And you got to the point where you would do a lot of research. Could you continue sure, through that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, you know, the, the process that we used at, at MailChimp was uh, there's research. There might be a design sprint to explore something that feels very unclear to us and we're not sure which direction to go. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time sketching is, is a really key thing because sketching is, it's fast. Um, it's, uh, low risk and lots of people can do it together. So this is a process hack for you. If you're designing in a small team, um, sketching separately together. So instead of everyone you know, like working through an idea on a shared whiteboard, um, you know, calling out ideas and so forth. Each person can um, draw a series of solutions or ideas within a limited period of time. So let's say that everyone come up with eight solutions in five minutes. If you went to design school, you probably did the 100 uh, thumbnail sketch uh, exercise, which is brutal. Um, the first 20, you know, not that bad. And then the next 80, it's really hard. It's a bit like running a marathon. You get through a couple miles, it's okay. And then you get those last five, it's just, you know, it's really hard. Um, but the thing about sketching is that you can do it together. And if you're doing it separately together, if you've got five people, each producing eight solutions in five minutes, you've got 40 different ideas to choose from. So uh, the math is good if you sketch separately together. Um, and then from there, of course, you kind of follow the, the standard process of we, you define which, which solution or small set of solutions seem strongest, then you start to build those out in higher fidelity in a computer. Uh, and then you can start to test those with real people. Mm. I really like that approach because I've actually worked in web design. I, um, I'm actually known online for doing my Lego design work, but I've actually been working for a web design agency for the last 10 years. And uh, the, the way that we, uh, we've needed to approach it is we do one version that's based on the template and it rolls out, but the solution that you've explained here sounds so much more effective and it's um, more focused on actually solving specific problems and then actually understanding are they working or not and I I really like that approach so thank you for sharing that with us and I think the the hundred sketching thing I think that can work for you know things like logo design and branding and other areas oh, of graphic, yeah. de graphic yeah. design as well so it sounds like a really good idea yeah, and you do it enough and um, you start to get to perfection very quickly. Um, I, I bet your listeners will know Paula Schur yeah. um, and, and her work. And uh, I know Paula, she's an amazing person. And you know she famously designed the city logo um, in like three minutes. And then, uh, you know, they, they build um, city, a, a pretty high um, invoice, for the work. And they said, we watched you do that in like 30 seconds. And she said, no, it took me 30 years to be able to do that in 30 seconds. Uh, so you're paying for 30 years of work. I thought that was great. Yeah. I, I've always loved that example. Uh, I think it was something like $1.5 million. So I, I'm not sure how many others could uh, pull that off, but uh, it's a great example regardless. 
I just want to take a short break to tell you a little about something I've been working on that I'm really excited about. It's called the Logo Designers Box Set. Six ebooks designed to help you through the logo design process from what tools you need, how to create a logo design brief, how to come up with ideas, how you present your work to clients, what files you need to prepare, and how you also find clients of your own too. These six ebooks are totally free to download and you can find them by heading to boxset.logogeek.uk and by downloading them you'll also be signed up to my email newsletter where I'll keep you up to date with all the latest podcast and content I'm creating so I hope that you'll sign up and find that uh, box set really useful again that's boxset.logogeek.uk now let's get back to the interview now, I, I want to ask you about your book, uh, which you mentioned earlier, yes. uh, Design for Emotion. Can you talk through what you mean by emotional design and uh, how we can use that to improve our, our design work? Yeah, so that book came from uh, a series of experiments and some exploration at MailChimp where we started to see a strong correlation between what the, the, how design can influence the emotional state of a customer um, for the better and create a great brand experience that's memorable and um, effective. So there, there, are, there are scientific correlations between, let's say, long-term memory and emotional um, experiences. We remember things that are good for us, that, that felt good, like you probably remember your first kiss um, that our, our limbic system, which is in our uh, you know, brainstem, um, is where a lot of emotion is processed. It's also where long-term memory is. And the reason why we remember things that are good for us, and also we remember trauma, things that are really, you know, we're, we're negative. It's, um, it's a survival thing. That if we remember things that are good for us, we can repeat those and we can thrive as, as a species or as a, as a you know, a, a, a person. And if we don't remember the things that harm us, we, we run the risk of, um, you know, not surviving. So um, there's a, a strong connection there. If we think about that, the way that the mind works, and we think about how design, I mean, we, we designers, I, I probably don't have to convince anyone that's listening that design can influence our emotional state. And many of us, we're obsessed with things that are beautifully designed because they just make us feel good. They make us feel comfortable. They inspire trust. They inspire creativity. Um, there's so many things about objects and, and the, the things that we can design as humans that can influence a person. And so we can be strategic about using design in key moments to create emotional engagement. I'll give you an example. Um, so with MailChimp, uh, it's, it's an email marketing platform and, you know, it takes a long time to design an email and write it. It's, uh, we tried to make it as fast as possible with the product, but, um, you know, just by nature of the medium, it just takes a long time to produce that. And when you get to the end and you're about to hit send, it, it feels um, a little scary because you can't suck an email back in. Once it's out, it's gone. It's out in the world. So there's this moment of high stress and then you press send and it goes out and then there's this just elation, just feeling like I finally got it. Um, and you feel super happy. It's like you kind of deserve a beer after that because it was such a major, uh, you know, 
uh, triumph for you. And so we created a high five. Um, there's some language on there. It just says high fives, your emails um, headed into the queue. And there's a, a high five, like a, a Freddy, the, the chimp, um, high fives the screen there. And to this day, if you go to Twitter and you search for MailChimp High Five, you see lots of people tweeting about it, pictures of them high-fiving their screens, high-fiving their computers, because they feel so connected to that moment. So that's a peak experience in the customer journey. If we can identify those and then we can use design to connect in that moment, we create this emotionally engaging experience that, that imprints on long-term memory. And that leads to a lot of word-of-mouth marketing. Um, it leads to, um, you know, uh, continuing to use a product, telling other people about it. That's all really good for a business. So thinking about emotion and its connection to design is so key. And so I wrote a book about this. It, it covers all of these things um, and more. And I also recommend checking out um, Don Norman's book. Um, it's just called Emotional Design. Uh, he's the guy who wrote uh, The Design of Everyday Things. And both of those books are a great read. Mm. Sounds like a really fascinating book and uh, a really interesting way of uh, thinking about a, a, a project. I'm sure it's covered in the book, but I'd, I'd be really interesting to know from you, like, how do you go about actually identifying those moments within a, a process or within a, a an, an organization where you can leverage um, understanding that because the, the 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 concept of it sounds absolutely amazing and if you can leverage that is absolutely fantastic and with something like email marketing you know that moment of sending it that's that feels relatively obvious that that would be a high stress moment for the user but other companies um i don't know where you might potentially put it do you have a method or, or some kind of approach for identifying those moments? Um, you can, you can um, use something as straightforward as journey mapping. Um, and journey mapping, if you, if you go to Medium and you search for journey mapping, you'll see lots of articles that will tell you how to do it. But in a nutshell, what you're trying to do is identify the highs and lows of the customer experience. Um, where in the process of like, signing up for a product, using a product, kind of getting your bearings, doing mundane tasks and so forth. Where are the peaks and where are the valleys? And so what we can do is we can identify the places that are the worst, where it's so confusing and frustrating. That's where there's a lot of negative emotion happening. And it's not really a time to be cute. It's a time to, um, you know, fill in that valley and make it just easier, just make it more intuitive and easier. And then where there are peaks, um, that's where you can start to think about, you know, what's your high five moment? Um, if, you're, if you're, let's say, a financial institution and you want to use emotional design, you might use it a little bit differently. Um, I know that Mint, um, if you've heard of Mint.com, it's kind of a, a financial tool. They, their success hinged on the use of design and creating an emotionally uh, engaging experience because they ask their customers to input login information for all of their, their banks so they can aggregate all of that data and show you meaningful stuff that helps you manage your money more effectively. So with them, it's less about creating a moment of joy or happiness 
um, or even a moment of humor, that would actually be dangerous for them. They, they need to inspire trust. And so um, they use design um, to make sure that the brand and just the, the experience felt really buttoned up and well-considered because if it looks great and feels great, um, that suggests that it's probably a stable platform. Uh, it's not unlike going into a job interview in person and, you know, you, you don't go in in your, your pajamas. You go in looking your best because you want people to trust you that you're someone who has their stuff together and, and can be reliable um, and intelligent and have something to offer. So um, design just on a, a general level, um, you know, I'm sure all of your listeners are working hard to, to create really compelling, beautiful experiences. That in itself is, is uh, an emotion, creating an emotionally engaging experience. Mm, that, that's really interesting. I, I'm keen to do some journey mapping on my next project to see uh, where things could be improved. Uh, because like I mentioned, I, I do a fair amount of UX work. So it's a nice extra thing to think about, you know, to, to improve the experience further. So um, I, I think I'm definitely going to have to uh, check out your books. It sounds really interesting. Um, anyway, I, I know here today you are VP of Design Education at Envision, uh, which is a really impressive title. But what does that job entail? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I lead uh, a small team of folks um, with a background in the design space. And together, we spend a great deal of time um, building relationships with design teams and trying to understand what helps them succeed and where they struggle. And we try to capture the best practices because we're sort of standing on, a, on the top of a mountain, being able to see across a lot of design teams, we can start to see some patterns. These are the things that are best practices. And we want to share those with as many design teams and designers as we can. Um, because if we do that, we can advance the role of design in lots of different types of businesses. Um, so we sometimes do research. Uh, we write books, articles, uh, we have a podcast, the Design Better Podcast, where we interview interesting people like David Kelly, who co-founded IDEO and created the, the Stanford D School, uh, Julie Zhu, who's the VP of Product and Design at uh, Facebook, um, and lots of other really interesting folks. So um, we try to give everyone access to the, the design wisdom of the world. Mm, that's absolutely fascinating it's basically um I, I know what you were saying earlier about your role when you was working at MailChimp how you like to do all of the um research am I right in understanding it that uh you are basically collating all of that information understanding the target audience for Envision and then effectively feeding that back into the product to improve the products and product offering and stuff like that well, um, sort of. Uh, we do have a connection to the product, but our primary goal is to give the design best practices to the world. It's, it's a bit of a long play, if you think about this, that if we can help design as a discipline advance, um, we help create a space where the many design tools that, that we create and we offer to, to customers uh, that 
it's, it's more needed. Um, you know, it's, it becomes really critical. So if businesses can start to understand design, then they can start to invest in it. And when they do, that's ultimately going to be good for Envision. But our primary goal as a team is to serve the design community and um, help designers um, improve their practice. It's, it sounds amazing. Um, so just to clarify, all of the information that you're collating, is that all freely available to anyone that wants access to that? Or? Absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. If you go to designbetter.com, um, you can download our entire library for free on design thinking, design sprints, animation, um, uh, you know, product design, lots of, of different things, design systems, design mm. operations. Mm. Um, of course, our podcast, we have events that we do as well. Um, lots of reports. So yeah, it's all free. Wow. That, that's absolutely incredible. I, I wasn't actually aware of that because I know that you did the, you, you got the uh, podcast, but I wasn't aware of all the um, other information. So I'm definitely going to check that out myself and I'll make sure to link to all of that in the show notes as well so that listeners can go and uh, check that out because it sounds immensely valuable. Um, I want to ask you about your podcast as well. I've listened to a couple now and your guests are absolutely uh, amazing you know anyone that listens to that you're really going to learn a lot from um, all of the guests that you're you're getting so I want to ask you what are some of the most important lessons that you've learned from some of the guests that you've had boy that's a that's a good question there are lots lots of interesting lessons I think that there's a there's a common theme about thinking in terms of partnerships so I used to think as a as a product designer and as a design team leader about the work, you know, just really focus on the work and making great work and thinking about the customer too. And that was all good and really positive. But um, the one thing that I, th I think I didn't do as well as I could have uh, is focus on partnerships that design is not really something that happens in a vacuum. It's not like you have total autonomy that you, uh, you made it all yourself. You know, there are, there are some listeners who might do that, who might, you know, code and design and put it all together themselves. And that's awesome. But chances are a lot of, of your listeners probably have to rely on others to build it, to market it, to sell it. Um, there are lots of other people who are involved in the process. And so thinking in terms of how do I build those partnerships? How do I think less about me and think more about we and, and how we collaborate. I think that's a common theme. Um, I, uh, you know, I also hear people like Abigail Hart Gray, who's recently on our podcast and how she builds partnerships by making sure that her goals align to the goals of her engineering partners. So, you know, she finds out what's really important to them. And then she knows what's important to her and she finds a middle ground and she creates a specific KPI or a metric, a goal that um, can be shared. And that's a good way to, to bring people together. And Abigail's at, at Google. She's doing some really interesting stuff over there. But um, yeah, I think partnerships are, are a, a key theme. That's, that, that's, that's really interesting. I, I need to make sure to uh, listen to that, but I, I think you're right. I, I know 
um, when you work with others, you get more done and uh, use the best skills of um, every everyone that you collaborate with. So it, it doesn't surprise me at all that that's been a, a common theme uh, for people that have been successful. And now I, I know we are near the end of the time we have available because you you got a hard stop. So I'm going to ask you one last question. Uh, we spoke a lot about UX design and there's been a few books that you mentioned, but are there any particular books that you've not already mentioned, books or resources that you would recommend graphic designers go out and buy so that they can uh, be better UX designers? Absolutely. Uh, one of my all-time favorite books, and I've had it for probably a decade and I still reference it, is Universal Principles of Design. That's a, that's a great one. It's about you know, concepts, um, techniques, methodologies, that's a good reference point. And what I like about that is that it, it feels like it bridges some of the concepts of graphic design and experience design, service design, um, all in one place. That's a, it's a fun read. And it's also just like an easy reference. Um, if you're trying to get your bearings just on some, some basics of, um, UX design, you might want to check out my colleague Leah Bewley's book, uh, UX Team of One, which just kind of assembles all of those, uh, the, the, the basic principles of how to do UX in one place. Uh, that's a great read. And if you're getting your bearings with research, you're kind of curious about that, you want to find how do I pull this into the work that I do and the offerings that um, I give my clients, um, Erica Hall's book, Just Enough Research from a Book Apart, is is a great one and of course all of the books from a book apart i think they're um you know jason santa maria's book on typography is great uh there's uh you know ethan marcotte's book on responsive design there's there's so many good ones in there yeah i'd agree with those books i've got a couple of them and they're absolutely amazing and no i'm keen to um read the one that you wrote uh, now that you've explained the the concept of um, using emotion within your work. That's, that's really interesting. I, I, I'll be honest, when I read the title, I didn't quite understand how that would work, but now you've explained it. I'm really keen to learn more about that. So I appreciate you explaining that. Well, Aaron, I know that you need to, uh, make a move in like the next 10 minutes. So I'm going to wrap up the interview, but I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and for sharing, um, some of your wisdom and I'll make sure to link to everything that you mentioned in, in the show notes so that people can find and learn more. But you know, I uh, just want to say, you know, thank you so much for coming on and for sharing so much with us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure talking with you. A fantastic interview. Thank you, Aaron, for your time. To learn more about Aaron Water, I recommend heading to his website, aaronwater.com. And you spell Aaron with two A's and two R's. Alternatively, you can head to the show notes uh, for this episode where you find links to that and any books or resources mentioned in this uh, episode, along with a full transcription of the, of the interview too. Uh, so to find that, simply head to logogeek.uk forward slash 5.3. Now, if you'd like to discuss this episode with me and thousands of other uh, graphic designers from around the world, join us in the Logo Geek community on Facebook. It's totally free to join. Simply head to logogeek.uk forward slash community. 
And if you like to join in on group video calls with myself and a small group of other logo designers, you can do that through something I've been working on called Logo Geek Plus, which is a, a premium community that I, I've been working on. Recently, as part of that, I've actually been inviting in special guests. And last week we had David Airy join us and he shared his whole process from start to finish, um, showed off a few things that he's been working on. And again, that included uh, proposals, contracts, prices, loads of stuff. So that on its own uh, was a really valuable episode. So uh, David, if you are listening, thank you so much for your time. It was absolutely amazing. And I know everyone in the group got immense value from that. Uh, Thankfully, we did record that. So if you did want to go and check out that session, you can do that just by joining the group. And you can see uh, past sessions we've done with people like Ben Noyes and all of the group calls that we've done so far. To be part of that community, it's only $10 a month. And you can join simply by visiting community.logogeek.uk. So that is it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and I will see you again the same time next week for another exciting episode of the Logo Geek Podcast. <laughs>